the joy of Welcome back, literary friends, to the joy of serious literature. This week we begin with a question. Can a man with five viscera and six entrails be distinguished from an underwater cattle shed? That question isn't a question. It's a poem by the legendary Korean avant-garde writer, poet, architect, and pimp, Isai. That's right, we are headed back to Korea. I didn't intend to return to that small peninsula, pointed like a dagger at the heart of Japan so soon. This isn't the joy of East Asian serious literature. But for the last couple weeks, I found myself rolling Isang over and over and over in my mind. Isang is a very strange case in the annals of world literature. On one hand, he's as close to a national poet as Korea has. Maybe not among the old fuddy-duddies, but among the youth, the avant-garde, the Korean writers that a foreigner might actually bother to read, He's the person they all seem to point back to as the bang that began their universe. In the introduction to the only substantial volume of his poetry translated into English, Three Poets of Modern Korea, the translator James Kimbrell describes riding in a taxi in Busan, Korea's second largest city, and hearing the disc jockey on the radio scream out, Isang is the greatest poet of the 20th century! And yet, by all accounts, Isang was a complete weirdo. Even by the standards of avant-garde literature, Isang was a man completely submerged in the deep end of decadence and strangeness. How is it that this guy, who babbles on about underwater cow sheds, whose most famous poem is just a repetition of more or less the same line over and over again, speak with such profundity and longevity to a people that, 40 years after his death, they name their most prestigious literary prize? the Isang Prize, in his honor. First, some biography. Isang was born in 1910, the year the Japanese occupation of Korea began. Trained as an architect, he spent a few years working, mostly as a draftsman, for the Japanese Colonial Administration's Public Works Department, and actually won some design awards. In 1933, however, he quit the Public Works Department to focus on treating his blossoming case of tuberculosis. While convalescing in a Korean resort town, Isang met and fell in love with a prostitute named Kum Hong. Kum Hong is a really fascinating figure in Isang's life. She seems to be at the center of everything he does during the most important artistic phase of his life, but you can hardly find a word about her in English that doesn't come from Isang himself. Together, the two of them decided to spend Isang's inheritance on opening up a series of cafes back in Seoul. I said Isang was super weird. Well, these cafes are where that weirdness starts to really shine. Because they weren't really cafes, so much as conceptual art pieces. In one of the cafes, Isang designed all the chairs, so that the moment you sat down in them, they immediately fell over and dumped you on the ground. In another cafe he sets up, he takes all of the furniture and piles it up in front of the door, so that it's almost impossible to get actually inside the cafe. You would have to force your way in, through this pile of debris, to even get close enough to order a tea or a coffee or whatever. It was while trying his hand at being an experimental cafe proprietor that Isang began to write for the first time, and he wrote voluminously, hurling out poems, short stories, and essays at a pretty furious pace, considering the weakness of his health. And his writing is no less inexplicable than his interior design. His most famous book of poems, Crow's Eye View, 
opens, for example, with a poem whose first ten lines read like this. Thirteen children rush down a street. A dead-end alley will suffice. The first child says it is terrifying. The second child also says it is terrifying. The third child also says it is terrifying. The fourth child also says it is terrifying. The fifth child also says it is terrifying. The sixth child also says it is terrifying. The seventh child also says it is terrifying. The eighth child also says it is terrifying. I think you get the idea. Another of his poems consists mostly of a sequence of numbers written backwards across the page over and over again, while a single dot moves between the digits. Yet another poem goes like this. At the feet of the plump and dwarfish god, I have fallen and suffered a wound. And then, on the line below, there is a schematic drawing reminiscent of Cesare Tenegiro's poetry in The Savage Detectives, depicting what I guess would be best described as two boxes closing in on themselves. Where does such strange writing come from? Isong is a writer, as I understand it at least, I am no scholar of Korean literature, who comes completely out of nowhere. He is without precedent, at least within his own national tradition. Isong is a writer rarely written about in the West, and so it's hard to find much discussing his precise literary pedigree. Who did he read? What influenced him? Some places you read will suggest that while studying in the Japanese colonial education system, he was exposed to the various European avant-garde movements, like Dadaism, which by the late 1920s had started to filter their way into the Japanese literary ecosystem. Others, though, claim that the true inspiration for his writing style was his education in architecture, that what dictates his poems aren't the rules of literature, but the rules of design and structure, tensile strength and load-bearing walls. But all of that is really neither here nor that. What matters is that Isang showed up and wrote literature like an alien, and designed cafes like an alien. Hard as it is to imagine, Isang's cafes were never what you might call financially successful. He's forced to close down one after another, his inheritance evaporating until he and Kum Hong are reduced to complete poverty. To deal with this poverty, Isang doesn't try to get his old job back at the public works department. He doesn't do anything. He steadfastly refuses to do anything. Instead, to keep her and Isang from starving to death, Kum Hong returns to prostitution. This period of his life, this relationship dynamic, if you will, becomes the subject of what is generally considered to be Isong's greatest single work, and is certainly his most famous work, the short story The Wings. The Wings is a portrait of despondency, nihilism, and decadence run amok. Not amok in a society, but amok in a single man, living a single life. In Isong himself, it seems. It is, in some sense, the most marvelous and delightful description of what it is to live out the idea embodied in the popular phrase, fuck it, Nothing matters. The story begins with what is practically a thesis question. Have you ever seen a stuffed genius? I am happy, the story continues. At a time like this, even love is pleasant. Only when the body sways from fatigue does the soul sparkle like a new shiny coin. As nicotine seeps into my stomach infested by roundworms, a sheet of white paper opens in my head. I put down witty and paradoxical thoughts like checker pieces on that white sheet of paper. It is an abominable disease of common sense. I again plan a life with a woman. The life that our narrator is building with this woman, which he calls his wife, is a less than conventional one. 
As the narrator's stream of consciousness spills onward, we learn that he and his wife are living together in a small complex of 18 houses, where they share a single room, which is divided in half by a partition, which effectively turns it into two rooms. One room for him, one room for her. He says of his room, My room, it is not a house, because we never had one, suited me by all means. The temperature of the room pleases me, and the duskiness of the room comforted my eyes. I did not want any other room cooler or warmer than my own, nor a room darker or more comfortable. I thanked my room all the time, because it seemed to maintain itself to please me, and I was glad that I might have been born into the world for that particular room. But I did not consider happiness or unhappiness. I never needed to wonder whether I was happy or unhappy. Everything was all right, as long as I was allowed to loaf day after day. That I could idle in the room fitting like a well-tailored suit to my body and soul was a convenient and comfortable situation to be in an ideal atmosphere, far apart from the worldly speculations of happiness or unhappiness. I like that environment. It's passages like the above, these streams of witty and paradoxical thoughts, that are the true delight of Esong's writing. Like Clarice Lispector, he thinks like no one else thinks, or at the very least he expresses his thoughts with a frankness that startles, surprises, and smashes one's expectations of what kinds of thoughts can be expressed. He takes despondency, laziness, overwhelming apathy, and transforms them into these passages of energetic, ecstatic, delicious prose. Constantly as you read, you find yourself writhing in your leather-back chair with giggles. My wife washes her face twice a day. I wash myself not even once a day. The plot of the story, and there is a plot, which is part of what makes Esong's fiction rise above Dadaist contrarianism or jokesterism, into actual, sustainable, enjoyable literature. The plot revolves around the mystery of the narrator's wife. He's so apathetic, so surrendered to oblivion that he doesn't even understand what's happening in his own life, in his own room, with his own wife. She comes, she goes, she provides for him, but he doesn't know how or why. He doesn't know how or why anything. He's almost like a character from some absurdist play, born naked and bewildered in a prison cell oblivious to the very existence of the workings of the world. Does she have a job? he asks himself. I could not tell what her occupation was. If she did not have a job, she did not have to go out, as I did not have to. But she did. She not only went out, but entertained many guests at home. When she had many guests, I had to stay under the bedding quilt in my room all the time she was with them. I could not play with the magnifying glass. I could not sniff at the cosmetics. On those occasions, I pretended to be sorrowful. Then she would give me a coin, a 50 Gion coin. I liked it. Since I did not know what to do with these coins, I used to throw them to the head of my bed until the silver coins formed a small pile. My wife saw the collection of coins one day and bought me a coffer-shaped savings box. After I put all my coins in the box one by one, she locked the box and took the key away. I remember I kept dropping a coin now and then into the box, even after that. And I kept being lazy. When I found a trinket dangling like a pimple on her forehead, I understood why the savings box was lighter than before. I stopped paying attention to the box. I was too lazy to alert myself against such incidents. What's clearly happening, one quickly surmises, is that she's prostituting herself and then paying the narrator his cut of the proceeds. This is how she keeps him afloat. 
This is how she sustains him. This is how he's allowed to live his life of loafing, frequent despondency, and occasional writing. And yet the mystery of what's happening on the other side of the partition, the nagging question as to where the money comes from, how it is that he survives, seems to prick at the narrator. And like a fool, he starts to poke his nose around. At first, I started to research to identify my wife's occupation but I failed to verify her vocation due to my limited knowledge of and short-sighted observations on life. I may never be able to discover what her profession is. My wife wore brand new white cotton socks all the time. She cooked rice too. As a matter of fact, I have never seen her cook, but she never failed to fetch me something to eat at mealtime. At our home, there is nobody but my wife and I, so she must have cooked the rice. Yet my wife never invited me to her room. I always ate and slept alone in the hidden room. The rice was tasteless. The side dishes were miserable. Although I kept taking the fodder like a puppy or chick without complaints, I regretted the dreadful food now and then. Naturally, I was emaciated, my complexion growing paler and paler. I noticed my health failing me every day. The bones stood out here and there as tokens of undernourishment. Their relationship is so alienated. There is no affection from his wife. Her coin dropping is a business transaction. She goes about it out of a heavy feeling of duty. She is obligated to help him, but really he is just a nuisance to her, like some sort of invalid. And he is an invalid, more or less, but it bothers him to exist that way, or at least it bothers him for a moment. As I tried to untangle such riddles, my intellect would whirl in chaos. The final conclusion I reached before falling asleep was that I did not like the whole business, but I did not ask her any questions about it. That questioning might have been troublesome. And anyway, I forgot it all by the time I woke up. In this narrator that Isang cracks, in this narrator that is clearly based on Isang himself, we have this portrait of passivity. Like I said before, he is living out to the letter the feeling of fuck it, nothing matters. The state of his life does not matter. His life does not matter. His very existence is there to be squandered. With each sentence, I can feel five centuries of the Protestant work ethic writhing inside me in horror. This is decadence. But what does it actually mean to be decadent as an artist? Can you really believe in the value of nothing and yet also create art? And Esau created a lot of art. He wrote voluminously when you consider the shortness of his life. He opened and designed all those cafes. This tension left me bewildered by Isong for a long time. Why does he write the way he writes? Why does he produce so much and yet bask in the glory of his own languidness? Why not go all the way and do completely nothing? Recently, however, I finished reading with my Japanese literature book club. What student of serious literature doesn't have a Japanese literature book club? This new gargantuan biography of our dear friend Yukio Mishima. And in that sprawling mess of a biography, there was an excerpt from an essay Mishima wrote on decadence, where he defines decadence in a way that really surprised me. To Mishima, the pinnacle of decadence isn't the despondent esthete or the obese aristocrat, but the Japanese kamikaze, the pilots who suicidally slammed their planes into American naval vessels during the last days of World War II. Generally, we think of the kamikazes as doing this because they thought that if they smashed themselves like human bombs into aircraft carriers and battleships, they could scare the allies out of continuing the war or invading Japan. That this was a rather extreme, 
but ultimately utilitarian endeavor. But Mishima denies this. He says that the kamikaze actually knew that their actions were futile, that there was no way for their deaths to stop the Allies from winning. Japan was doomed, and yet they suicided themselves into the decks of American ships anyway, because their ideology, their belief in the divinity of the emperor, demanded that they die. Decadence, as Mishima defines it, is knowing that the world is doomed, that the apocalypse is upon you and cannot be stopped, and yet acting anyway. You know that your action is futile, that your belief is futile, but you act out that belief anyway. You act on behalf of the cause, in this case die for the cause, when acting for the cause is the most useless. That, to Mishima's mind, is the ultimate, most perfect decadence. Never had I heard it articulated that way. And in hearing it articulated that way, in some throwaway essay Mishima wrote for a quick buck to buy snazzy new sashes for his private militia, I felt like a little light bulb went off in my head, and I started to feel like I was maybe finally beginning to understand what made Esau, the most decadent, self-indulgent, languid writer I'd ever read, tick. I said at the beginning of this podcast that Isang was born the year the Japanese occupation of Korea began. The 25 years the Korean people spent as subjects of the Japanese empire were an endless nightmare. The Japanese conscripted, if not outright enslaved, huge numbers of Koreans. They stole vast quantities of Korea's natural resources. They executed thousands and thousands, tortured tens of thousands. They even eventually tried to destroy the very idea of being Korean forcibly banning Koreans from being allowed to have Korean names, and famously burning down the palace of the Korean kings and replacing it with a zoo. Living underneath that iron heel practically every day of his life was Esau. He was less oppressed than most, perhaps. His uncle who raised him had some money. He got an education. He was able to find work with the colonial administration. But there was never any future for him. He was Korean and there was no future for Koreans under the Japanese occupation. Isang, by his own estimation, was a person with profound talent, with a brilliant eye for design, with a knowledge of architecture, with an ability to envision a revolutionary new direction for his nation's literature. And yet, what can he do with any of that talent? Nothing. He was a conquered person. He couldn't advance. And even if he did advance, what could his successes actually achieve? If he goes out and builds bridges for the Japanese, what do those bridges do but further his oppression? If he starts a successful business, what do the successes of that business accomplish but the lining of his oppressor's coffers? If he writes pleasant, comprehensible literature, what does that do but distract people from their conquest? There is no way for him to use his ability, and therefore, perhaps, what he's doing is burning his ability in a glorious bonfire of uselessness. He acts but he acts with deliberate futility. The chairs of his cafes collapse, his poetry befuddles, his short stories drown themselves in a sea of nihilism. Behold, a stuffed genius, a neutered genius, an impotent genius, a futile genius. But maybe not quite yet an entirely dead genius. As much as he claims to abandon his search for the truth about his wife, the narrator keeps finding himself poking the wound sneaking into her side of the partition when she's out, trying to trail her outside the house, accidentally coming home in the middle of one of her parties. This last bit leads him afoul of his wife, but he seems unable to help himself. Despite his best efforts, he keeps interrupting her, 
At first she is merely annoyed, then her annoyance grows into a powerful anger. Eventually, in what amounts to the narrative climax of the story, she violently beats him in front of one of her guests and drives him from the house. Wandering the streets alone, in the dark, his home lost to him, his wife lost to him, the narrator's eyes blink open, it seems, and he confronts what his life has become. I flopped down anywhere, at random, and started recollecting the 26 years of my life. No particular subject popped out in my lax memory. Then I asked myself, what desire do you have for life? But I did not want to answer whether I had any desire at all. For me, even the significance of my own life was difficult to decipher. Stupid. I watched a goldfish in a nearby bowl. They looked nice. The bigger ones, as well as the small ones, looked lively. In the showering May sun rays, the fish dropped their shadows at the bottom of the glass bowl. The fins waved like handkerchiefs, trying to count the number of fins. I kept stooping down. My back was warm against the sun. I looked down at the littered street below. Down there, the tired life swayed heavily like the fins of the goldfish. They could not free themselves from the glue, the invisible tangle of thread shackling them. I realized that I could not but mingle into the littered street, dragging my body, suffering from fatigue and hunger. Suddenly I stopped to think. Where was I now going? My armpits itched. Ah, it was where my imitation wings had split out. The wings that I had no longer. The deleted phantasms of hope and ambition flashed in my mind like the flapping pages of a pocket dictionary. I stopped my pace and wanted to shout. Wings, spread out again. Fly, fly, fly. Let me fly once more. Let me fly just once more. Finally, the narrator wants to live. He wants to be not just a shell, but a living creature. He wants to move, to rise, to thrive. But no wings sprout from his back. Nothing happens at all. The story ends. And because it just ends, there is this sadness that forms in the back of your throat as you read through that final passage. This is a story. A character is supposed to progress, and a character calls out for progress. But progress is impossible. There is no unclipping a clipped wing. Mishima's beloved kamikazes destroyed themselves in the blossom of their youth in order to prove some idea about the value of the emperor, even when the idea was useless. The narrator of Isang's The Wings chose to destroy himself in the blossom of his youth, in order to prove his genius, even when his genius cannot possibly be of use to anyone, even himself. Behold, a stuffed genius. No one cared about Isang's writings while he was alive. He published in underground rebel magazines, but that was all. There was no place for Korean literature at any point during his life, let alone literature that bewilders and confounds and experiments. He hurled salvos into the darkness, and the darkness remained unmoved. Eventually, he left Kumhong, married some other woman, and traveled to Japan, ostensibly to study law. But moving to Japan, trying again to eke out some measure of ambition, did little to alleviate his doom. In fact, it compounded it. Not long after his arrival, he was arrested and imprisoned for what are generally described as thought crimes. What that means exactly, I cannot tell you. Despite considerable effort, I've never been able to dig up a detailed description of exactly what it was he said or did to offend the Japanese authorities. Perhaps they read one of his poems. 
He doesn't spend long in prison, but when he's released, he's so weakened by the experience that, compounded by his years of difficult living, his tuberculosis finally kills him at the age of 27. 27 years. That's all it took Isong to make himself into a national poet, into Korea's own languid paragon of the avant-garde. It's hard not to wonder what he might have accomplished had he lived in better times. Might he have been an East Asian Frank Lloyd Wright, a man also famous for designing chairs that fell over when you sat in them? Would he have written some world-spanning experimental novel, some Korean answer to Ulysses? Or would he, as some of his friends have suggested, just found some other way to burn his life to ashes? Who can say? But what we can say is that for a brief moment, in the blackness of Korea's darkest hour, a man who called himself Isan flashed like a supernova. No one was stranger. No one was wilder. No one was more honest about how little they cared, at least for certain stretches, about the possibilities that come with being alive. And that, in his masterpiece, that flash still glows brightly for anyone who has ever felt their wings constrained by oppression by gender, by race, by the smallness of their homeland, by the limits of the world to actuate their dreams. Thank you. This has been Episode 8 of The Joy of Serious Literature. As ever, I have been your host, Bryant Davis. There are a few people I'd like to thank for their help with this episode. The first is Kim Hee Mon, who first talked me into reading Isong. Isong has become a significant writer for me, and that never would have happened had He-Mong not bullied me into reading The Wings one Wednesday afternoon while we ate sandwiches. I'd also like to thank the poet Don Mi Choi, whose translations of the Korean Wikipedia article on Isan that he posted in the comments section of an article about Isan, published on the now-defunct blog Montevideo, were invaluable to me in sketching out the details of Isan's life. Who says that the comments section is always worthless? If you find yourself compelled to further explore Isong's work, there is, of course, the aforementioned Three Poets of Modern Korea, translated by Yu Jung-yul and James Kimbrell. All the poems mentioned in this episode come from that volume, and there are some real gems in there, including a great poem called Distance, about lying to your wife that you're coming to visit her when you are not, in fact, ever going to come visit her. You can also find a very thin book of his short stories, named The Wings, after The Wings, which includes two other short stories, both dealing, of course, with the tumultuous relationship he had with Kum Hong. Or, if you're interested in seeing where the Korean poetic tradition has gone in the wake of Isan, I'd like to recommend to you the work of Kim Yi Doom, K-I-M-Y-I-D-U-M. Like Isan, she's a true literary bomb thrower, and she has a really great volume called Cheer Up Femme Fatale that was relatively recently translated into English, by Ji Yoon Lee, Don Mi Choi, and Johannes Gorenson. Her poems are all about sex and murder and murder then sex. It's a lot of fun. Check her out. All right. Godspeed.